Software Engineering Radio, episode 116, The Semantic Web with Jim Handler. This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio brings you relevant and detailed discussions and interviews on software engineering topics every 10 days. Thanks to our audience and the partners listed on our website for support. Hello listeners, welcome to a new episode of Software Engineering Radio. In this episode we're talking to James Handler. He is uh, a professor at the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and he is one of the inventors or of the leading figures in the semantic web space. So we're obviously going to talk about the semantic web. Um, please excuse the not-so-great audio quality. We did the recording via Skype, and uh, as you all know, sometimes it works better, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, Jim's microphone probably also wasn't the best, but we did clean up the audio quite some. It's easy to listen to when I edited it, I had no problems. But anyway, it's not up to the usual standard. Anyway, so here is the um, episode. Welcome, Jim. Why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? My name is Jim Hendler. Right now I'm a uh, professor at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, or RPI, in the States, where I have just recently moved in the uh, past year to create a center focusing on the semantic web and web-related uh, applications and research into the web. Uh, prior to this, I was at the University of Maryland for the past couple of decades. And in that time, among other things, we created some of the early technologies in what are now called semantic web. So I've been doing this for a long time. One of the ways I'm known better is that I went to uh, the U.S. funding agent, C. DARPA, and helped create ah. a program called DAML, which helped fund the uh, early semantic web work and publish some early articles with Tim Berners-Lee on the semantic web concept. Yeah, so so you, you were described to me as the father of the semantic web. <laughs> so that explains it. I would I would call Tim the father of the semantic web. Okay. So I, I, I was more the, uh, I don't know what, maybe the midwife. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, I guess all of our listeners know what the web is. They probably won't know in detail what the semantic web is. So can you can you give us a, a definition or a vision or a explanation of what it is? Sure. We spend a lot of our time trying to think of very fast ways to explain it. And the one that I like best is right now, if I have a document, I can put it on the web and it can point at any other document on the web with a simple link. But if I have a database, or a spreadsheet, I can't put that on the web and have it point at other databases and spreadsheets. So in a sense, create, figuring out what's the infrastructure by which data and definitional information can come to the web rather than just documents is at the heart of the semantic web. Mm -hmm. I, I've heard it called the web for machines or for, for the web for, for software or, or, or programs. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways to view it. The key concept is right now the information on the web is primarily described for human use. Yep. 
But if I'm using data or something like that, it's very hard to describe that for human use because what I need to do is correlate it, aggregate it, collate it, query it, all things that sort of happen back behind the, uh, you know, sort of somewhere in the infrastructure. And then when I present it to the human, it's going to look like a table or a text or a website. So it's really about building a new infrastructure for the web to make uh, far more of the data work together. And of course, that will require more machine to machine integration of things. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about the ingredients that will be necessary or that are in place or have to be put in place to make this uh, this goal realistic or, or feasible? I guess I'd say there's three things you need. So one is, since we're creating data on the web, we need a data format that can include links. So my database and your database, if I want to integrate them, I need some way of knowing what can be merged, what can't be merged, which things link to which other things. So the language, the resource description framework, or RDF, is primarily the language that gives you that. So we need a standard for the kind of data description. The next thing you need is a means for describing terms in that data. So um, if I have a, a database, I look at a column called C27 colon 19, and I see that it's filled with the number 15. Mm-hmm. That doesn't help me much if I want to merge it with another database. Yep. If I know that that represents the age of a person, uh, then I can find the another database which has either other properties of that person or, or ages of other people. Now I know how to put them together. So we call that an ontology or a domain description in a formal um, way to represent it. Mm-hmm. Is that where the term semantic comes in? Because these ontologies define the meaning of things in a common or standardized or agreed upon way or or framework? Yeah, that's basically it. Okay. The key is that um, if I want to represent, if I want to link data together, I really tend to have to know what it's about. And often it's about something that's not in the database. So my employee database is about people. But to link my employee database to something else, I may have to know people drive cars or people own houses. And that's when things get complicated because there's nothing in my data schema called a car or a house. So we have to be able to represent those semantics external to the data. If you talk about linking data, then you don't mean uh, having explicit hyperlinks or links like references, but rather joining disparate data by matching some of its properties and and matching disparate data sets against each other and thereby joining them? Well, so again, you're now talking more the technology of how to use it than that. In fact, I started to go down those technologies and then moved up to a slightly higher level. Yeah. But when you really want to play with this stuff, so first of all, you need a way to get the data out of a database into a place where it can be merged, or you need a means to query the data dynamically. For yep. That. Yep. So RDF lets you create the what are called triple stores, or a different description of the data that's more like a graph than a table. Yep. The, the intuition behind that is easy. If I take two tables and want to join them, um, it's hard to figure out which, if, if I don't know which columns line up with each other columns, or if some of the columns don't line up, then I don't really have a method to create a new thing that will be a table. 
Yeah. If I take two trees and merge them, I can't guarantee I get a tree. But if I take two graphs and merge them, I can guarantee I still get a graph. So sort of a directed labeled graph is a way to think of what RDF is about. Mm -hmm. So you take your data, you turn it into that kind of graph structure, and now you can access things through graph algorithms, things like that. You need a, a standard way to query that sort of stuff. The language Sparkle, S-P-A-R-Q-L, is sort of the semantic web extension of SQL that lets you put in those graph patterns. Uh, you need some way to describe the terms that aren't in the database. Like I said before, something about cars or about houses. Yep, yep. So we use the language called OWL to represent the ontology. So that's really the, the keys to the semantic web. You need RDF uh, to describe the data. You need OWL to sort of link terms about the data. Think of it as just a higher level data schema. Yep. You need Sparkle, which is the language for clearing the data. And then there's various other uh, emerging standards to deal with other other things you may want to do in that space. Okay, so um, well, we talked about the ingredients. You said there is the common language RDF, there is the ontologies OWL, and what's number three? Well, I said Sparkle, the right, query sorry. language. So yeah. Again, if you have a data language without a data query language, it's hard to use. There are some other things in there too. I mean, there are inference engines, uh, systems that, given data against one of these ontologies, you might be able to make some inference. So if I know you are a radio host, I know you are a person mm -hmm. um, and not a web page. Well, that could be important if somebody, if I'm doing a search, yep. um, that kind of thing. So if someone says search for Marcus Walter, information about Marcus Walter, I'd like to find something very different than if they asked me to search about your web page. Yep. Right. They may or may not be the same thing. Certainly if they asked me to search about your blog or about your columns or things like that. I have to know what's about you and what's about the things you've written. And how do these inference engines relate to RDF and OWL? How do they, how do they use those data descriptions and, and, and standards? Well, there are, there are various different ways, but the key is that since those are now in a standard format, so if an OWL, I want to say a graduate student is a kind of student, I use a particular relation. So I can make that explicit. Furthermore, getting a little more technical, you do have software developers out there sure. that will be able to follow this. Yeah. We don't describe the terms just using words. So I don't just say car. I actually give it a URI that's against a, so HTTP colon slash slash some website and then some document that describes this, has this relationship described in it. Ah. That means you can actually dereference the term to see what that description is. So that's where the language OWL comes in. You can actually see some of the machine-readable relations which legitimize the inferences. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that's important is you don't get the kind of accidental co-reference you get in English. So one of the things Google does, it says the word fish can be a name, it can yeah. be an animal, it can be something you're doing. If I say HTTP colon slash slash dub 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 that CS you know something sure. slash animals hash fish, yeah. it, it gets a lot clearer yeah. that that two people using that same thing are not likely to be talking about different things. Right. So it's not just a word; it's actually an identity which is represented yeah. by you. So, right. so essentially, you try to give each concept an identifier. You try to make data instances of, against those identifiers. And then you create a web of how those identifiers can link to each other and describe each other. Mm -hmm.
if, if you talk about inference engines, to me this sounds quite a bit like Prolog. So is there a, a relationship to this kind of logic expressions uh, that people m might know from Prolog? You know, the, the easiest answer is yes, and the second easiest answer is no. So <laughs> what I mean by that is, in a sense, bringing this stuff to the web is sort of like bringing hypertext to the web. A lot yeah. of the same tools apply, but things that work in the small don't work in the large of the web. Things that mm -hmm. work in controlled closed systems don't necessarily work in large-scale open systems. Yeah. So much as the early hypertext tools are relevant to what eventually happened on the web, but not usually what works on the web. Same thing. So I may use Prolog to power a tool that's doing something with semantic web mm -hmm. data, but I could also be using, you know, any other language, Java, right. Ruby on Rails, scripting languages, you know, explicit languages, or I can go get, um, there's, you know, tools out there. So something like Pellet as a reason or a particular inference engine tied to the language OWL. So if I don't want to build my own, I can, I can just call that one remotely or, you know, use it as a tool. Yeah, so the reason why I asked was because of this um, inferencing, which is also a, a, a property or a characteristic of, of how Prolog works. Yeah, so, so essentially you start from agreement. We just know two terms mean the same thing. Yep. Then we can say given something is using that term and is related by a certain relation to another term, maybe I know something about it. So if I say um, that student is a relationship, well, I, um, student at relates a person to a university. Mm -hmm. And I would know that if I saw, uh, you know, John Smith, student at RPI, yep. even if I knew nothing else, I know that John Smith must be that kind of person and RPI must be a university. Yep. Yep. But again, against these technical definitions in these documents that are dereferenceable. So I, I think Prolog uses something called first order predicate logic, right? Is, is that also used in OWL? Part, part of the problem is there are different people who have different ideas about how you should do inference in this okay. case. I actually, a talk I've been giving recently, and I will be giving at the Link Data Conference in a couple of weeks, is all about there's very different views about what we're trying to do. And several of these different views now have return on investment happening. I can talk about that if you want. But mm -hmm. the key difference is some of them, you really want the reasoning to be very, very precise and very carefully controlled. And there's one view of OWL that says, this is called description logic reasoning. Mm -hmm. So one view of OWL says, limit your OWL to things where the description logics will return sound and complete answers. There's another view which says, you know, I'm doing recommendations of friends in a large scale social network. And if I had a little bit of inference and I could do a better job than Facebook does now, that would make me some money. So I don't really care about these complex, sound and complete things. I just need some very simple inferences. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, Prolog, you can build it with restrictions or build it unrestricted. This, this stuff has some of that same flavor. Okay. When I was preparing this, uh, this episode and, and also browsed a little bit around your website, I, I saw that you've been working in AI uh, a while ago. <laughs> so is there a relationship um, from the AI world or topic or, or, or stuff to the to the semantic web beyond the logic stuff? You know, again, I would go back to that hypertext analogy. Yeah. The the semantic web technology derives from several technologies. 
the the name sort of gives the hint. One yep. is semantic, which derives sort of connotes the AI side, but the other one is web. Yep. So essentially, the real challenge in the semantic web has been taking AI, which was built for closed and carefully controlled systems, and bringing it into this much wider world of the web, mm -hmm. where you have open, dynamic chains. So, you know, AI never had to deal with, with going to look up whether something was a legal reference and getting a 404, mm -hmm. right? On the web, you have to deal with that. So AI systems, for example, have traditionally assumed that all of the facts you know are consistent, are, right. are correct with respect to each yeah. other. But, you know, on the web, we get disagreements, we get error, we get fraud. So a, a reasoner that said, if I can find two websites that disagree with each other, I can prove you owe me money, right? <laughs> would be a wonderful thing to have on the web, but yeah. only if other people would believe it, which they wouldn't. Yeah. So from a research perspective, some of what we've been having to do is re-examine AI as an open, dynamic, mm -hmm. web-scale system. Mm -hmm. And that's where a lot of the exciting research for those of us who are in universities comes out. Mm -hmm. You already mentioned that... Um, the semantic web uses obviously web technology and I guess that's basically HTTP and XML, right? Well, I mean, we're built on top of HTTP, uh, XHTML, mm -hmm. this RDF language sits on top of that, ah. uh, URIs for naming, things like that. So yes, very much on top of those web mm -hmm. um, things. In fact, one of the big changes that's happened over the past couple of years, the term web 3.0, Mm -hmm. has been coined recently to talk about sort of the applied early, well, the semantic web startups in the web space primarily. And what you're really seeing there is web application developers have discovered the use of these RDF systems to do things that are very hard to do in relational data systems. Mm -hmm. So again, it's still very much just web technology with HTTP, but now you're doing HTTP with a Sparkle query so, so right now on a web, to do a web application, very often what you do is you go to a web page, it queries to a back end that gets data, turns it into a web presentation of that data, mm -hmm. and then you scrape that data to get it into right. your database. Yeah. If you can query that data directly, yeah. you'd have a significantly easier time. The problem is you can't query that data directly unless you have all those things we've been discussing, common terms, common formats, yeah. ways to... Interactive. So Sparkle plus RDF plus OWL is really the tool set that lets you start doing that stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, companies like Radar Networks in the States or MetaWeb or Garlic in the UK, uh, Onto, anything that starts with O-N-T-O and then has <laughs> other letters after it, and, and there, um, or Austria, you'll find. I mean, a lot of this growth of new companies has come less from the AI side getting the benefit from the web and yep. much more from the web side really discovering that a tiny bit of, of this AI stuff is very useful. I think there is an, an interesting thing here and that you said that um, the semantic web is also sometimes called web 3.0. I, I had sometimes the impression that really the semantic web should have been web 2.0 but then there came the other web 2.0 and um, I mean, what I want to say with that is that the semantic web technologies are relatively old, but haven't like really taken off for a while. Is is that fair judgment? You know, I think I think that's fair to some degree. Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly we've been, you know, my group has been working on it since '95, '96. Mm -hmm. 
it really got a lot more visibility around 2001, 2002. So most people date Semantic Web to an article in Scientific American that Tim and Aura Lassila and I wrote mm -hmm. that came out in 2001, although it was around before that. Mm -hmm. um, but, but in a sense, like any technology, first the standards have to get developed yeah. and mature, then they have to get accepted. So there have been a lot of chickens and eggs. Yeah. And I think what's happened is you've really seen over the past year and a half a big change in that space. Enough is out there now that you can really create an application from scratch very quickly, start building the pieces, get it into a web framework. There's starting to be, for example, um, server farm implementations of a lot of things that were single machine uh, even six months ago. So much larger scaling and things like that has become possible. Would you count things like tagging, you know, this wisdom of the crowd stuff? Would you count that as being part of the semantic web or is that like more or less the opposite where you have the semantics in the people and you, you, you exploit the huge amounts of people to tag things semantically in quotes? You ask questions where I could go on for hours but won't. But as a <laughs> yes. professor, it's hard not to. <laughs> but let me, let me put it this way. Think about the following. If you go to Flickr and you take my first name, James, mm -hmm. you'll find 900,000 images have been tagged with that name. Yeah. Now, it doesn't seem to make sense to me that a lot of people go out there and use James as a search right. term yep. at Flickr itself. What instead happens is you go into some context. So if you went to my wife's area on Flickr, mm -hmm. then you would know James is likely to be me or if we had a child or yep. if we had a cousin. Or if you go to a movie thing, James may be James Bond or James Dean. Yep. So again, once you get into a context, those social tags are very, very powerful. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that's what a lot of the Web 2.0 sites have been focusing on more recently. You actually see less tagging than you used to and much more focus on the social interaction. Right. Yeah. Uh, the semantic web, the terms we're using are predefined. In a sense, if you can figure out how to get people's terms over to that terminology, then you get some real advantages because you know this James is being used particularly for a person and it's this person and they're yeah. a professor and they have these things. So the trick is they're really two very different technologies. I think in the early days of semantic web, we undervalued the importance of the social context. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the early, uh, some of the early web 2.0 people, microformats and things like that, yep. referred to themselves as the smallest semantic web. <laughs> they got the social part right, yeah. we're missing some of the fact that the vocabulary is important. And in fact, there's an emerging set of some new standards and some new tools which are bringing those things together. If you look at Yahoo's recently announced Search Monkey, mm -hmm. uh, so they want to open up the search engine, make much more things available to the user, the application developer, et cetera. They are making some of these technologies available as a way to do that. So you can now take your tagging type approaches, tie things into these more technical vocabularies, and then use the technical vocabularies for querying, for searching, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Okay. We, we talked about the technologies um, that are in place there, RDF, OWL, SparkUL, and GRDDL. I don't know, Griddle, or what, how do you pronounce that? Yeah, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't talk too much about Griddle, but Griddle is one of these things, for, and there's another one called RDFA, are aimed at making it so you can take XHTML web pages, embed this thing in it so that if you do an HTTP request, 
in a human readable format, so you do HTTP content type XML, you'll get one, you'll get the human readable form. If you do content type RDF, you'll get the machine readable form. Mm -hmm. So, right, my, my, my question would have been, or, or is, or what kind of tool support is there for these technologies? What kind of tools do you need and, and what's the status of those tools today? I think that's where there's been the biggest change over, you know, again, first you have to get people interested in technology. The tools have to transition out of research labs. Yep. What we're really seeing now is a very wide range. There are open source tools for, so if you kind of think of the ecosystem of building one of these, you need some way to describe your data, some way to query your data, a way to build these um, the domain descriptions, ontologies, a way to put things into websites, a thing to search or crawl, et cetera, et cetera. All of those things are now available. Uh, for a while, there was a small number of them. So, for example, HP had a tool called Jenna, which was for, we, we use it, the, the term triple store is often used for, the, for an RDF database. Mm -hmm. So, Jenna was sort of the only open source triple store out there. Now, there are, there are uh, at least dozens out there written in just about every language. So, you know, if you're a Ruby developer, yeah. if you're a Java <laughs> developer, if you're a C developer, you, you have, you know, you can get the tools and the languages you want. Yeah. Uh, they're starting to be lots more of these tools sold. There are companies that have built very, very large scale um, proprietary infrastructure. So the garlic company has its own store. There's other companies that have built similar types of things and are making it available as a service. So instead of you hosting your own billion triples, yep. you get someone who will host them for you yep. and then you interact with them through a web interface, things like that. So we're really at the point now where finding the tools is not the hard part and putting them together is relatively straightforward. It's really understanding the technology that's still the growing thing. And again, it's, you know, again, as any new technology comes out, people have to learn to use it. Yep. Is, is there like integration with mainstream stuff? Like, for example, some kind of, uh, I don't know, RDF store based on top of Oracle or something so that can, it, can be integrated with my legacy data and infrastructure? So uh, sort of is the answer. So Oracle has actually has an RDF store as adding OWL now mm -hmm. um, in, in their uh, 10 and 11G product. But, um, you know, the integration with your legacy data still requires some work. It doesn't sort of right. automatically get exported as RDF just because yeah. you're using the tool. You still have to build the equivalent of a schema or an ontology. So there's still work to be done. But... But again, it's much easier getting the stuff to the web. So when I started this, you know, you had a lot of this raw triple stuff. Yep. And you want to look at it on the web. It didn't look very pretty. Now people have developed a lot of standard visualization, things like that. Mm -hmm. So you invoke a web. There's uh, a conference called the Semantic Technology Conference, which mm -hmm. is held yearly. Each year we've been getting about 30% more people than the year before. This mm -hmm. year we had about 1,000. Whereas you heard people talking about scalable triple stores. So again, if, if anything, the problem now is that there's a lot out there and it's hard to find as opposed to that there's nothing out there. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're already in the exciting field, so you don't have to get in there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So thank you very much, Jim, for being on the show. Okay. Thank you.
Thanks for downloading and listening to Software Engineering Radio. Software Engineering Radio is an educational program brought to you by Hillside Europe. If you want more information about the podcast and all the other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. If you want to support us, you can donate to the SE Radio team via the website. Or you can advertise for SE Radio, for example, by clicking on the Dick Reddit Delicious and Slash Dot buttons. To contact the team, please send email to team at se-radio.net or if it is specific to an episode, please use the comments facility on the website so other people can react to your comments. This episode of SE Radio as well as all other episodes are licensed under a Creative Commons 2.5 license. Please see the website for details. Thanks to Charlie Crow and the Podsafe Music Network for the music used in this show. The song is called Vegas Hard Rock Shuffle.